the ship you are riding on, look where it is heading. Your body's port is the graveyard. Realizing the destiny of each clay bowl tossed into the sky with no one to catch it. Finally, I accepted the beloved's kind offer to enroll in their sublime ball-busting course of love. Hafiz. The ship you are riding on, look where it's heading. Your body's port is the graveyard. Realizing the destiny of each clay bowl tossed into the sky with no one to catch it, finally I accepted the beloved's kind offer to enroll in their sublime ball-busting course of love. I thank you all for, all for enrolling. In this session, as we look directly at where the clay bowl of our temporary body is headed. It's actually very inspiring for me to come and sit in the hall with all of you. Everyone is sitting so well. And the samadhi power of this many people sitting together is quite palpable and contagious. I often say that Sashin is a lesson in impermanence. We can have a sitting period where our concentration seems quite good and we're able to catch our mind early as it wanders off and bring it gently back. But then the very next period we might have a surge of unexpected emotion or we might be engulfed in a thick fog of drowsiness and we try all the tricks we know to dispel drowsiness and they don't work. Followed by a period where we're working hard on intense, unpleasant, uncomfortable sensations in the body. Followed by a period that just flows with no markers of time. And we're surprised when the bell rings. Just keep on sitting. Just keep on sitting. We're not trying to find a certain state of body, heart, and mind to rest in permanently. We're looking for what lies beneath all states of body, heart, and mind. Hafiz again. It was all so clear this morning. My mind and heart had never felt more convinced. There is only God, a great wild God. But somehow, I got yanked from that annihilating realization and can now appear again as this wine-stained, talking rag. This practice has a wisdom of its own. This practice has a pace of its own. Don't evaluate or rate your sitting. Just keep on returning. Things begin to shift, and change happens below the level of the conscious mind. Our mind may not register what has changed or what has dropped away, Insights can arrive days after a session has ended. The Zen literature describes the essential requirements for Kensho or for seeing into true reality. Their great determination, great doubt, and great faith. Great determination means never giving up, absorbing yourself, into your practice and the practice into you until the two fused 
the two have fused into the next requirement, which is great doubt. Great doubt means a palpable mass of questioning, which becomes the engine for absorption in the practice, in listening, in the breath, in the koan. Great faith means never giving up. Never giving up in the certainty that you, like all the ancestors and Dharma students of the past, are intrinsically enlightened. And the most important work you can do is to uncover your birthright and live its mandate. So we're tracing in this session the last journey of the Buddha before his death. And yesterday we talked about him being in Rajagaha and giving advice to a king who was planning war. Then he moved to Ambalatikita, where he taught the seven factors of enlightenment. And then to Putilagama, where he taught the precepts. So every place he stops, he teaches. And then he moves on. So he taught in Putilagama, he taught the precepts and the fruits of keeping or not keeping the precepts, and what the consequences, the karmic consequences of keeping or not keeping the precepts. So often when you're reading the Pali Canyon, you think that what the Buddha is teaching is very simple. And he repeats it over and over and over again, sometimes for new audiences, but often not. We all have the experience that we can hear something that a teacher says Maybe they've said it to us a hundred times, and it's like, yeah, okay, I've heard that. And then another teacher says it in a slightly different way, and suddenly it opens up. Or a line from one of the chants that we've memorized because we've chanted it so often is kind of opaque, and then something happens in our life, and suddenly that line is exactly what's happening. For those of you who are fairly new to our chanting service, some pointers. So when we bow and touch our head to the ground and lift up our hands, we're lifting up our potential for greater compassion and greater wisdom. It's essentially why we're here. So this is an old gesture from India when um, people would go to a ruler or even their mother or grandmother and bow down and touch their forehead to the person's feet and then sometimes lift up their feet above their head indicating, I honor you. So we're honoring our ability, our potential, for awakening. And then the chant, the Daishin Durrani, that we do fairly often, which is in Sino-Japanese, that's a chant that's traditionally chanted for people who've died. So if you have in your heart someone who's died, then you can dedicate silently in your heart that chant to that person or to anyone who's dying anywhere around the world. You know, we have the conflicts around the world, the mass shootings and so on in our heart, and the widespread circles of grief that happen from those killings, those deaths. So at Sogenji, for example, in the morning service, they sometimes chant the Daishinjirani seven times. And each time there's a dedication for a different ancestor or somebody in the um, imperial family that established that uh, monastery hundreds of years ago. 
And then the Shosai Myochi Dorani, the one that we chant with some vigor, that's a chant for averting calamity. And of course, most calamity is caused by our own mind or other people's distorted minds. So uh, the vigor we bring to that chant is to dispel calamity, to spread, hopefully, more peace, more wisdom, more kindness in the world. So again, you can dedicate that chant to So the Buddha gets to Patilagama and he sees that they're building a fortress in defense against the Vajis. So as is happening in Ukraine right now, they're building up um, weapons and fortifications against the Russian invasion. So that's been going on for thousands of years. And the Buddha watches this construction project, and then he looks, they say, in the Pali Canon, with his heavenly eye, pure and transcending the faculty of men. So because his mind is so clear and so vast, he can look, and and untroubled by uh, by time, by boundaries of time, he can look and see what may happen. So he sees that Patilagama will become a a very busy uh, city, foremost in the area of India, a trade center with many trade routes intersecting in it. And then he says, but Ananda, Patilagama will be assailed by three perils, fire, water, and dissension. Remember he said that the Bhajis couldn't win against the Magadans if they could meet in accord. Patilagama will be assailed by three perils, fire, water, and dissension. So think of the changes we're seeing now with climate instability. So right now there's a huge snowstorm sweeping its way from west to east. We got some of, some of it this morning. We'll get some of it the next two days. And then it's going to gather intensity as it goes across the Midwest, the northern part of the Midwest. It'll become blizzards. It's predicted to become record-breaking blizzards. But at the same time, in the South, in the United States, there'll be record high temperatures. And they say it'll be 80 to 100 degrees in some parts of, southern parts of this country including Washington, D.C. So in the south, in the north, fire, water. These storms are often followed by floods and dissension. And we know about the dissension in our country. And even around the world, the dissension fills the news every day. Assailed by three perils, fire, water, and dissension. So we have to know that the difficulties that we perceive are not new. In fact, they've they've discovered many Mayan cities using LIDAR, um, radar that will penetrate through foliage, and they've discovered many ancient Mayan cities. And uh, they were puzzled as to why they had been abandoned. Huge cities with outlying farms and roads going to other towns and so on. And they think now it was a long period of drought. And the same thing in, uh, in the Sumerian civilization, very ancient civilization, invented cuneiform writing. They've uncovered a big Sumerian city, and it looks like drought is what did it in. So nothing that's happening is new. This is just the world of samsara, turning and turning and turning, the wheel of samsara. So then the Buddha and Ananda left to go south 
out of um, Patilagama, and they had to cross the Ganges. These days there's a, there are bridges across the Ganges, but in those days not, because it's a very, very wide river. And it was full to the brim, says the canon. And people were looking for a boat and trying to tie together pieces of wood to make a raft because the Buddha was standing there wanting to cross. But the, then it says, the blessed one as quick as a strong man might stretch out his bent arm, so like that, vanished from this side of the river Ganges and came to stand on the yonder side. And he saw the people busy looking for a way to float across, and he said, desiring to cross an ocean, lake or pond, others make a bridge or frail raft. The wise have crossed already. Then he proceeds to Kotigama, which is on the other side of the Ganges from Patalagama, and he taught the Four Noble Truths, the way to the other shore. So, appropriate to what had just happened, however it happened. And he spoke on the three treasures. He talked about the Buddha, the happy one. I've never heard that um, title for the Buddha before, the Buddha, the happy one. Keeper of the precepts, paramount trainer of beings. Paramount trainer of beings. He spoke on the Dharma, evident and timeless, inviting investigation, leading to emancipation, to be comprehended by the wise, each for themselves each for themselves. So that's what each one of us is doing here. We don't accept other people's answers or discoveries. We might be inspired by them. But this is a practice in which we have to make the discoveries of all these truths ourselves. And he spoke of the Sangha, worthy of honor, of offerings, of veneration, the field for doing of good deeds in the world, uninfluenced by worldly concerns and living in a way favorable to concentration of mind. So here we are, living in a way, for at least a week, favorable to concentration of the mind. And the Buddha specifically describes a this is having put away clinging and grief for the world. So this is a time when we can put away clinging and grief for the world, the insolvable problems of samsara. And the Buddha speaks as this as a prerequisite for developing concentration and clarity, to put aside clinging and grief the world. You know, we sometimes talk about purity of mind, our chant, for example, our work chant, to purify, we work to purify our mind. And um, at first I had a bit of aversion towards the word purify, because it has a Judeo-Christian context to it, like we have to be pure free of sin, etc. But it's actually a description of what happens in our practice to our mind. That all of the tangle of thoughts and emotions that block us from seeing the truth underneath need to be let go of. And the mind becomes pure, like it's like the analogy that we often use is water. You agitate water, various impurities get stirred up, and gets cloudy, you can't see through it. You can't see through it. And then when it settles, it becomes clear, as happens with our minds directly. So for developing concentration and clarity, clarity, the Buddha says we have to put away clinging and grief for the world. The world is as it is. And the clearer we get, the more we know where our place is in the world to help with the grief of the world. 
Then the, the Buddha moves on to Nandika. And uh, I love these little uh, touches where we get a glimpse of what's going on. He stays at the brick house. So we think of the Buddha always as living under trees. But people began to build places or loan places to the Buddha and his followers to stay. And actually, when we were in Sri Lanka, we um, were at a huge ancient monastery, um, which has now fallen into ruins. But you can see the outlines of the buildings and sometimes some of the walls and the trough uh, that the monks ate ate food from or was served were served from. Huge, 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 because there were hundreds of monks there, and there was a three-story building where the monks stayed. And this is only a few hundred years after the Buddha's time. Somehow, you know, I had in my mind, they couldn't build three-story buildings in India at the time, or Sri Lanka, but they did. So at the brick house, he's asked about the lay followers. Ananda asked him a question about a lot of the lay followers here, they used to be here, have died. So what's their destination? This is a question that people sometimes ask the Buddha about someone. What is their destination after they've died? And the Buddha, again, contemplates and uh, looks with the inner eye and says that 90 lay followers who have died have become once-returners. That's a Theravada term, that you will come back again one more time before you're completely awakened. Now, from the Mahayana point of view, we would like to do that. We'd like to come back and serve as bodhisattvas in the world of samsara, wherever we can. But we have to be very careful, you know. I, some of the things that I can't do in this lifetime, I think, okay, next lifetime. So... <laughs> like learning to juggle. Next time, I'll take it up when I'm 10. I'll learn to juggle. <laughs> so 90 followers, he says, lay followers, these are all lay people, have become once returners. And more than 500 lay followers have become stream enterers. Stream enterers, and he says specifically, safe from falling into states of misery, assured and bound for enlightenment. And then the Buddha taught the four foundations of mindfulness. Mindfulness in the body, feelings as feelings, the mind, and mind objects. So the very, the very meditation we're doing every morning, the Buddha taught over and over. Because we can always discover something new in these practices, always. It's not like we do stage one and then we put it aside and we never do it again. This is a mind that keeps yielding as we dig. Then the Buddha says, Come, Ananda, let's go to Vesali, which is also called Vaishali and exists today in India. And the Buddha visited Vesali a number of times. Remember when the pandemic began? Some of you remember we chanted. Uh, a chant that came when a, uh, that came from an, a pandemic that killed many people in Vaisali, and so that that chant still exists, and that's the chant that we did for about a month at the beginning of the pandemic, every day. Also, in one of his visits to uh, Vaisali, uh, Mahapajapati, the Buddha's foster mother, who raised him after his mother died a few days after she gave birth, Mahapajipati came to Vaisali with her retinue of women who wished to be ordained. And that's where Ananda helped, helped women with their petition to the Buddha, finally saying to the Buddha, you know, is it not true that women can practice the Dhamma and discipline and become awakened? And the Buddha said, yes, it's true. So the Nanda's like, well, so the Buddha said, okay. <laughs> so we have all of the women in this group and throughout our women ancestors, which the lineage we chanted this morning, 
We have Ananda to thank for that. And there's actually a service for Ananda. It's a secret service. And we did it once at one of the Soto Zen Buddhist teachers' meetings. The women did. Um, and I, I want to find it before the person who um, helped us do it has passed on. See if we can do it here. So the Buddha and all of his retinue, they often use the, word, the numbers 500 or 1,000 to indicate lots of them. A lot of ordained stayed in a mango grove park, which was owned by a woman named Ambapali. Ambapali was a foundling, and she was found beneath a mango tree. <clears throat> And so her mother and father aren't known. Some legends say she was spontaneously born from this um, mango tree. And um, she was given her name at birth from the Sanskrit words amra, which means mango, and palawa, which means young leaves or sprouts. So a sprout of the mango tree. Maybe that helped give rise to the legend that she was born spontaneously. And um, uh, she grew up to be a very beautiful woman compared to Cleopatra of another culture. And she became very talented in many arts and especially in dancing. And at that time, there were, you know, 500,000, however many princes in this kingdom of Vaishali, uh, who wanted to marry her. And they began quarreling and competing with each other, and they became so disruptive that the king made her a property of the state. Property of the state, like a national treasure. This was done at that time with beautiful women. And she was able to keep peace among the princes. She wasn't a prostitute in the usual sense. She was an official courtesan of the state, and she could choose her lovers as she wished. She had a lot of power. So she, she managed to keep peace among the princes, and she became, they say, more wealthy than many kings. And she also became a very generous benefactress. She heard that the Buddha had come to Vaishali, and she went by carriage to her park, where they were all staying, the Mango Park, where she had been born, to hear the Buddha preach. And she was inspired by hearing his teaching. And so after he had finished talking, she uh, approached him very reverentially and invited him to dinner, he and all of his monks ordained, uh, to dinner the next night at her place, which was said to be like a palace. And the Buddha accepted but meanwhile, back in Vaishali, this is what's going on. Then the princes, the Lachavi princesses of Vaishali, came to know. The Blessed One, they say, has arrived in Vaisali and is now staying in Ambapali's grove. And they ordered a large number of magnificent carriages to be made ready, each mounted. One, and accompanied by the rest in their carriages, drove out from Vaisali. Now of these Lachavis, some were in blue, with clothing and ornaments all of blue, while others were in yellow, red, and white. So you can imagine the sight. I love these details. And it so happened that Ambapali, the courtesan, she's returning now home to get ready to make dinner for the Buddha the next night. So it happened that Ambapali, the courtesan, drove up against the young Lachavis, axle by axle, wheel by wheel, and yoke by yoke. So it's like Ben-Hur. <laughs> no, really, in some translations, they say she actually crashed into them. Thereupon, the Lachavi princes exclaimed, Why do you drive up against us in this fashion, Ambapali? They actually used a derogatory name. Uh, her name, but also derogatory name like prostitute. 
She replied, Thus it is, indeed, my princes, and not otherwise, for the Blessed One is invited by me for tomorrow's meal, together with the community of bhikkhus. And then the princes shouted, Give up the meal, Ambapali, for a hundred thousand gold coins. So they're trying to bribe her so they can bring the Buddha, whom they haven't even heard yet, uh, to dinner. But she replied, Even if you were to give me Vaishali, sirs, together with all its tributary lands, I would not give up a meal of such importance. Then the Lachavis snapped their fingers in annoyance. See, friends, we are defeated by this mango lass. We are utterly outdone by this mango lass. That's my favorite line. <laughs> so they go and they hear the Buddha. And then uh, they ask the Buddha, you know, trying to wedge their way in there, would you come to dinner with us tomorrow night? And he says, no, sorry. I'm going to Ambapali's. So people who comment on this say, you know, just like Jesus, quote, hung out with women of ill repute. So the Buddha didn't distinguish between princes and prostitutes and people, lepers, one of his, one of his bhikkhus had leprosy, and so on. Caste didn't mean anything to him. Riches didn't mean anything to him. So the Buddha came to dinner, and after dinner, she offered the mango grove to the Buddha and his disciples and actually donated the park. She never married, but she had a son by King Bimbasara, and that son eventually became a monk. And when she heard him preaching, she decided to ordain as a nun. And her meditation subject was the impermanence of the body, and eventually she became an arhat. And we have her verses preserved in the Therigatha. And I'll read you, it's, it's, her verse is fairly long, I'll read you part of it. Black as night, like the down of the honeybee, curled and flowing was my raven hair, black silk. Now with age, it resembles strands of hemp. What the Buddha has said is true, I have no doubt. Once fragrant as a basket full of blossoms, belonging to the gods, my cherished tresses. Now with age, they smell like animal fur. What the Buddha has said is true, I have no doubt. And then she talks about going bald. She used to have ornaments, gold and so on, on her hair. Like two crescents finely drawn by an artist, my brows were exquisite, alive with youth. Some of you may know, currently there's a kind of obsession with eyebrows on Instagram and TikTok. You can get your, your eyebrows cut in with a very, very fine razor and then like tattooed, but cut, actually cut. Like two crescents finely drawn by an artist, my brows were exquisite, alive with youth. Now with age, they only wrinkle and descend. What the Buddha has said is true, I have no doubt. And my eyes, like royal jewels, they shone, sparkling and resplendent, long and wide and black. Now with age, they fade and dim, they shine no more. What the Buddha has said is true, I have no doubt. Then she talks about her nose, her earlobes, in the past, my teeth dazzled with their whiteness, shining like the color of the plantain bud. Now with age, they are chipped and broken and black. What the Buddha has said is true. I have no doubt. Once I warbled sweetly like the cuckoo that lives in the jungle thicket in a grove of trees. Now with age, my voice is weak and faltering. What the Buddha has said is true. I have no doubt. I remember my throat was like a conch shell, well-polished by the sea, delicate and graceful. Now with age, my neck is bowed, bowed and bent. What the Buddha has said is true. I have no doubt. Then she talks about her arms. Adorned with golden rings, smooth and soft, these hands of mine were fair to look upon when I was young. 
Now, with age, they are like the root vendor's roots. What the Buddha has said is true. I have no doubt. Once my breasts were round and full, they rose up into the air side by side. Now, with age, they sag like empty water bags. What the Buddha has said is true. I have no doubt. Oh, the beauty of my body in the past, like a sheet of gold, polished to perfection. Now with age, fine wrinkles cover it. What the Buddha has said is true. I have no doubt. And then she goes down her legs, thighs, like we've been doing in the morning meditation, thighs and calves and ankles. And then feet. Once my feet were elegant, like sandals filled and stitched with cotton from the silk cotton tree. Now with age they are cracked and wrinkled. What the Buddha has said is true, I have no doubt. Such was this complex form, I called it mine, withered now and old, the abode of aches and pains. It is the house of age, see the plaster fall. What the Buddha has said is true, I have no doubt. So I calculated the distance that the Buddha had walked by this time in this last journey. And he was 80 years old, and he had walked 80 miles at this point. Next, he goes to the village of Beluva, where we first hear of him becoming ill. So now I'd like to do a, another guided meditation. And um, you're welcome to stay seated for this or lie on your right side as you did yesterday um, or against the wall, whatever you're, makes you comfortable. So we begin by becoming aware of your body, the places of strong sensation where it touches the chair or the floor or the mat. and the places of lighter sensation, perhaps where your clothing moves against your body as you breathe. Now bring to mind all the things you have bought or made during your entire lifetime. Make an imaginary pile of all the food you have eaten, the clothing you have bought or sewn, from infancy to now, all the clothing you have worn, all the shoes, socks, scarves, gloves, and jewelry. Add to that pile all the books you have bought. And any art you have created or bought, painting, sculptures, cups, bowls, plates, teapots. Any poems you have written, any stories or books you have written. You can add any structures you have built or bought, tents, sheds, houses. and any cars that you have bought and owned. Now add to the pile any furniture or antiques you have owned, any objects you have collected. How high and how wide is the pile? Now let go of all the possessions you once had that have gone somewhere else and just look at the things that you currently own, including anything in storage. Imagine the pile of your current possessions, books, papers, clothing, shoes, computers, electronic equipment, musical instruments, beds, blankets, 
pillows, sheets, towels, clothes hangers, beauty supplies, medicines, camping supplies, dishes, utensils, cooking pots and pans, appliances, coffee makers, blenders, other kitchen gadgets, washer, dryer, stove, fridge, bicycles, skates, skis, lawn or garden equipment, maybe a car that you own or a house that you own or a condo that you own, everything you currently own. Imagine that in a pile. How tall and how wide. Don't let judgment enter, just observe. Now imagine that you suddenly and quietly collapse and die. Without any pain or prior symptoms, you peacefully collapse and die. To your surprise, your awareness is now free of your body and quite clear. You can see everything, you can hear everything, but you have no agency. You cannot speak or touch or change anything. You watch what happens below you, but you cannot influence it in any way. You are only awareness and curiosity. What is it like to be consciousness not tied to a body? You decide to follow your possessions to see what happens to them. Watch the pile of your possessions. Are any taken by family or friends? Are some given away to goodwill or to places that will give them away or sell them? Will some end up in the trash in landfills? What happens to the things you created, artwork, poems, blogs, books, recordings, videos, PowerPoints, the music you composed, the photos you took, everything you posted on social media, the things you made of cloth, glass, wood, or clay. Watch as your former possessions move away and disperse. You can also watch as the possession you call my body also disperses. Now move forward 10 years. 10 years after you've died, look again at what has happened to the possessions you had at the time your body died. Look at what has happened to everything you owned and created while your body was alive. Now move forward 50 years, 100 years. What has happened to all those possessions? 200 years. Now look with objectivity and equanimity at the causes you took up and worked for. Social justice, racial equality, climate change, child abuse, domestic violence, political work, homelessness, hunger, gun control, elimination of certain diseases, spiritual awakening. Any causes that you took up and worked for when you had a body 
what has happened to those causes in a year. Moving forward 10 years, what has happened to those causes? Fifty years. A hundred years. Were any of those causes picked up and carried forward by others? Have any of those issues been resolved? Now look back at all the thoughts you had when you had a body. All the thoughts you had when you had a body from childhood till now. What has happened to all those thoughts and ideas? Do any of the thoughts and ideas you had have any life after you die? Has anyone picked up your ideas and carried them forward? Now do this with all that you learned in your lifetime. Interesting facts, classes you took, books you read. Has anyone picked up what you learned and carried it forward? Now look with interest at all the emotions you felt when you had a body. Look at the anger you felt and the people you gave it to. Now move forward in time to a year after you died. What has happened to that anger, that frustration, that resentment, that irritation? that you felt and expressed after a year has passed. What about in five years? In 50 years? Was that anger, that resentment carried forward by those you gave it to? Was it passed on to others? Now look with interest at the love you felt and the people you gave it to. Move forward in time to a year after you died. What has happened to that love, that friendliness, that tenderness that you felt and expressed? after a year has passed. After 10 years have passed. 50 years. Was that kindness, that love carried forward by those you gave it to? Was it passed on to others? Now look with interest at the spiritual or religious practices you did. The concentration, the compassion practices, the loving kindness, the sympathetic joy, the equanimity, the Tonglen, the Lojun, the koans you passed, the shikantaza, the clearing of the heart-mind, the resting and quiet open mind, whatever spiritual or religious practices you've done in your lifetime. Chanting, bowing, singing hymns, teaching Sunday school, whatever you have done in your lifetime. 
Moving forward in time to one year after the death of your body, does anything remain of these practices in the world? Did those practices pass anything on to others? Were they carried forward by those you gave them to and passed on to others? Look forward 10 years, 50 years, 100 years. If you were able to come back into a body to walk and speak and have agency, is there anything you would change? Is there anything you would make a priority? Anything you would let go of? Now bringing awareness back into this body, which is alive. The breath and the heart beating. The tingling aliveness of this body, which we still have for a while. How will we use it forever, however long we have it? This body, this heart, this mind. Thank you.